Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. This is sort of fun for me. It's my first official book reading. I've been talking about this stuff for years on and off. Been working on it for years, but have the nice physical object manifested, which is uh, it came out came out very well. I want, wanted to say, as he mentioned, that the, the the book is mostly concerned with kind of close a close look at the extraordinary experiences that three gentlemen underwent in the mid 1970s: Terence McKenna, Robert Anton Wilson, and Philip K. Dick, all of whom were associated or living in California. So it's really kind of a West Coast. A tale in a lot of ways, but I had a I had a problem with the book design because I didn't want their names on the cover. It seemed kind of too many words. There was already kind of a wordy title, and I didn't want their faces on the cover because that's just kind of kind of cheesy, you know. It's sort of like oh, put their face on the cover, you know. And I was like, but they got to be on the cover somehow. So I was like worrying about this in the middle of the night. I was like in a kind of hypnagogic. Uh, insomniac worry fest and I was like oh my god what am I gonna do about the cover and then but in that because I was in this weird dream state like I was starting to think about these authors and then certain symbols emerged that came out of their writing like the uh, the uh, triangle with the eye on it which is uh, Robert Anton Wilson and then the pink eye is something that uh, Philip K. Dick saw in his fantasies and then I, I sort of naturally saw the mushrooms of Terence McKenna growing behind and becoming a UFO and it all kind of came together in my uh, hypnagogic state, and so I called my friend Eric Roper and said, can you do this? And he said, sure, I can do this. So I was very happy to see this uh, physical object. And I was gonna talk at the beginning more extemporaneously about kind of why I did this and how I came to it, but then I was flipping through it and realized that I actually have a nice little section where I talk about it at the beginning of the conclusion. So I thought I'd just start to uh, read that. Uh, this book is the culmination of a long, strange trip for me. A few of its germinal ideas first struck me 30 years ago when I studied English literature as an undergrad at Yale and wrote my senior thesis on Philip K. Dick's postmodern gnosis. That project was, was well received, but though I was obsessed with crafting critical prose, I couldn't face graduate school, the obvious next step. Over the next few years, I became a freelance writer in New York City, a rock critic and subculture journalist whose beat I now recognize was the weird. From the late 80s to mid-90s, I wrote articles and essays about heavy metal, cyborg theory, Burning Man, drugs, paranormal TV shows, UFOs, Gnostic cyberpunk, neo-pagan witchcraft, Buddhism, virtual reality, Goa trance, rainbow gatherings, and of course, Philip K. Dick. Needless to say, all these topics were more recherche back then than they are today. Balancing my theoretical interests with my nosedive plunges into alternative culture, I became what I now think of as a counter-public intellectual. I identified in many ways with the undergrounds I wrote about, and I was committed in a sometimes defensive way to affirming the value of fringe scenes whose distance from both highbrow norms and other indexes of seriousness I was defiantly and proudly aware of. But I didn't really find my conceptual tribe until through Terence McKenna, Burning Man, and Obscure Listservs, I tapped into the networks of the psychedelic intelligentsia. Now here was an anti-authoritarian world that combined maverick interdisciplinary thought, science geekery, wild and sometimes profane spirituality, existential courage, and the paradoxical honesty and humor 
of criminality. In some ways, the social and intellectual network proved more intoxicating and fascinating than the experiences themselves. Every few years or so, I'd kick around the idea of getting a PhD. So when Jeff Kripal kindly invited me to come study religion at Rice University and to join their Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism program, I accepted. I knew I wanted to return to some of those early ideas about PKD, and since I was already helping Pamela Jackson and Jonathan Lethem edit the exegesis, Dick's quote, psychotic religious experiences, unquote, and the texts he made from them furnished an obvious thesis topic. I wanted to see what happened when I brought rigorous the uh, theoretical and methodological approaches to bear on some seriously weird shit. But at the last minute, I balked. Uh, I ultimately wasn't that interested in focusing on PKD in isolation, because the thing is, is that you, you can make the most out of this one story, but in the end, it's a uh, you know, it's, it's an analysis of one particular individual. And in a way, it was kind of more interesting to see how is he talking to people around him. I also feared losing my way and possibly my sanity in the loopy labyrinths of the exegesis. And so I broadened my scope into a more comparative project whose polished, trimmed, and hope, hopefully beguiling vision uh, you now hold. Uh, I'll read one more paragraph. My own history inside and mostly outside of academia is reflected in the mixed character of this project, whose theoretical and historical concerns are shot through with the sympathy, sympathies and fanish obsessions of somebody irreparably stained with the weird. Though I have uh, rarely been interested in writing detailed accounts of my personal life, I've been blessed and sometimes cursed with my fair share of ecstatic, peculiar, enchanted, mystical, and sometimes paranoid experiences. I was friends with Terence, got to hang out with Bob Wilson and shape my baseline philosophical sensibility, who shaped my baseline philosophical sensibility as much as Nietzsche or the I Ching. When I first read Illuminatus, which is the book that R Robert Anton Wilson co-wrote in the, in the mid-70s, early 70s, I was a teenage deadhead living in a drug-soaked student co-op in Berkeley, the notorious Barrington Hall one of whose heroin-addicted denizens turned me on to Dick's scarce paperbacks at a time when to be a fan was to be a cultist of sorts. Then and now I consider my own work and mine to be part of this stream of feral, fringe, psychedelically inflected thought, though I'm e equally a creature of media theory and Zen and the comparative study of American religion. So that kind of sets up in a way what I was trying to do in this book, which is to go in and you know take scholarly questions, a scholarly apparatus and bring them to bear on things that are just really bizarre and hard to think about and to take them, as I say, seriously without taking them literally. So it's kind of a, a multi-leveled uh, operation. Uh, it's, it's like a chocolate cake. It's sort of like, you know, there's multiple layers of it. It's very dense and rich and it's got a nice pop kind of frosting on it, uh, but goes beyond the pop. So I thought I'd uh, give you a little, little flavors of, of some of the three sections on uh, the, the main writers. When I give talks about this project, I often talk about the weird in general as a kind of way of thinking about the world. And tomorrow night I'll be at the Zebulon Cafe and I'll give that uh, like slide lecture about the weird. But today, I, this was the first time I got to actually read from the book. And so I wanted to read some of the stuff from the uh, from the close looks at the authors themselves. So this is from the Terence McKenna uh, section. It's called Pharmacon. 
and oh, the one little backstory here is one of the tr great treats for doing this book is that Terrence McKenna wrote a book in the late 1960s called Crypto Rap. It was like a short sort of theoretical McLuhan-esque media drug futuristic rant. And he never wanted it published and his son kind of keeps the manuscript and, and it's probably not gonna come out but I managed to read it for this project which was a treat. Now the young Terrence McKenna may have enjoyed talking about drugs almost as much as he enjoyed taking them, but they don't make an appearance in Crypto Rap, this document I described, until the second half of the text where he offers, offers up a metaphysical hierarchy of psychoactive substances. Unlike many of his fellow freaks, Terrence places LSD rather low on the scale of mystical import below both mescaline and synthetic psilocybin, but quote, still higher up the tantric scale towards the one, unquote, is DMT, a potent hallucinogenic tryptamine that Terence first smoked in Berkeley in 1966. Though DMT is widely distributed in the natural world, the stuff Terence first encountered had been synthesized in a lab into a powder or gum. After smoking a sufficient amount in a glass pipe, he was hurtled, like many users, into a vividly seething, intricately patterned, and shockingly wondrous domain, only to be returned almost equally rapidly to baseline. Terence compared the experience later to an audience with the alien Nuncio, an image whose note of sacred science fiction complements the weird Lovecraftian adjectives Terence regularly used to characterize DMT space in his book, True Hallucinations. Elf-haunted, unambiguously peculiar, hair-raisingly bizarre, and titanically strange. And part of the point I'm making here is that the genre of the weird and the, uh, and the idea of weird fiction, like with H.P. Lovecraft or Clark Ashton Smith or, you know, looking backwards, uh, you know, some writers from the uh, 19th century, that in a way these experiences, the psychedelic phenomenology that these guys are exploring in the 70s is also kind of a species of weird fiction. They're reading this stuff and they're kind of experiencing these things in these modes. First synthesized by the underground, in, in the underground by the fearless Nick Sand in the early 60s, DMT was an established part of the countercultural pharmacopoeia. That said, the compound was largely absent from freak discourse, which probably indicates that most people found it too much to take. In a 1966 article on the substance, Timothy Leary reports that of the hundred people turned on to DMT by a psychiatrist friend, only four had a positive experience. William Burroughs hated it, while Alan Watts compared it to being fired out the muzzle of an atomic cannon with neon Byzantine barreling. Not exactly floating downstream beneath marmalade skies. The McKennas, on the other hand, were enraptured by DMT, and it was this rapture that led them to Columbia, where, where the main part of the story takes place, the famous experiment at La Chirera, this small village in, Columbia, in the Colombian uh, rainforest. The specific object of their quest there was an indigenous DMT-containing concoction of varola sap known as ukuhe. They read about the stuff in a Harvard Botanical Museum paper by the Amazonian ethnobotanist Richard Schultes, who pointed out that while various DMT-containing snuffs are found throughout the Amazon, ukuhe was orally active. As Schultes explained, DMT was generally considered to be pharmacologically inactive when orally consumed unless accompanied by monoamine oxidase inhibitors. That's what allows ayahuasca to be drunk. So you can come up, get off on the DMT because you have an MAOI through the harmine, although it's more complicated than that. Um, 
da da da. The McKennas were already familiar with ayahuasca or yahe from William Burroughs, who had come uh, in the 1950s to the very same depressing river town of Puerto Legozimo that they visited in order to come and drink the brew. But the McKennas were more interested in ukuhe, in part because of a peculiar detail offered by Schulte's Witoto informant. Ukuhe, the fellow claimed, allowed you to, quote, see and converse with the little people, unquote. Terence writes that the last line, quote, rang a bell, and it's an important metaphor, one of those uncanny resonances, in some sense literally, that sound the networks of correspondences that saturate the occulture of the era. So while he's looking at a scientific source and in many ways considered himself more of a naturalist than a seeker, he didn't really like spiritual trips, he wasn't interested in Buddhism, and he had theoretical interest in Tantra, but he wasn't a spiritual seeker. He thought of himself more as an explorer, kind of 19th century guy, but he was willing to go beyond the boundaries of, uh, of science or, na or natural science into the culture. McKenna knew, knew about the lore of the little people through his familiarity with the fairy faith in Celtic countries, a 1911 collection of folkloric accounts of fairies gathered by the independent scholar, theosophist, and Tibetan Buddhist popularizer, Evans Wentz. That same book also proved to be of pivotal importance to the UFO researcher Jacques Vallée, who almost certainly influenced Terence with his argument in the 1969 book, Passport to Magonia, that the bizarre behavior associated with UFOs and their occupants may have less to do with outer space than with the often strikingly similar narratives and images of fairy lore. These suggestive acts of comparative religion were, in Terence's head anyway, magnified by his own repeated empirical impression that DMT space was inhabited, not by gods or devils or bodhisattvas, but by anomalous entities that Terence memorably characterized as self-transforming machine elves. In Terence's experience, these flickering beings seemed particularly interested in language, puzzles, and information exchange. In True Hallucinations, Terence describes an early trip in which, quote, dozens of these friendly fractal entities looking like self-dribbling Fabergé eggs on the rebound had surrounded me and tried to teach me the lost language of true poetry. I'll re I return to that kind of techno-poetic enigma later in the book. Here we need to underscore the fact that Terence was and is hardly alone in his impressions. And this is an interesting question, one of the the theoretical or philosophical ideas I play with in the book is this idea of like, where does extraordinary experience come from? When people have radical mystical experience or visionary experience, how do we explain that? And, you know, social scientists try to write it off for kind of, you know, they say, look, it's in context. People are exposed to ideas and symbols and narratives earlier in their life. Then they have these extraordinary nervous system events. They have uh, some extraordinary experience and they kind of like, tell a story based on a script that they're already familiar with from their culture. So if you're growing up in rural Georgia, you know the scripts of being born again, so when you actually have some crazy extraordinary experience, it'll take that form. And that's one way of explaining what happens to people, and I think it's true to a certain degree. But to beyond that degree, something else kind of happens. But DMT is an interesting question. Where did these machine elves come from? Was it just Terence's idea and now that it's out in popular culture, then other people experience it because they've read it from Terence. But as a number of studies have shown, entity encounters remain a persistent feature of DMT experience reports, even among users largely free of such expectations. 
In his own DMT account from the 60s again, Timothy Leary reported a band of radar antennae elf-like insects merrily working away. Though influenced, no doubt, by Terence's colorful testimonies, Dennis's first DMT, DMT trip also staged an encounter with cartoon-like entities who seemed to welcome him. So happy to meet you again, meatworm, before inviting him to join their revels. Most readers, perhaps, will remain comfortable chalking up the machine elves to hallucination, cultural suggestion, or an evolutionarily adapted cognitive bias towards agent detection, which is actually a very interesting, pretty well-developed theory in cognitive science to explain why people all around the world have these impressions of non-human uh, agents, uh, spirits, spirits of animals, ghosts, all this kind of thing that we have uh, we're neurologically wired to tend to see an agent in some ambiguous source in the world because then you're more likely to think that the, th that the shaking bush is a tiger. So you're ready, you're, you know, the people who have that kind of paranoia are better off in the long run than the people who don't think there's agents operating anywhere and then they get eaten by the tiger. So there's a lot of uh, really interesting, sometimes over the top, almost silly work by cognitive sciences to try to explain away all this kind of stuff, but it's definitely worth reading and I like wrestling with it. Anyway, part of my experimental aim here is to sneak up on other possibilities beyond these explanations. Even if the elves are nothing but empty fabrications, such encounters can still deliver an existential punch whose uncanny air of, vera of veracity and high weirdness outweighs reductive explanations even in retrospect. Sometimes that punch is strong enough to knock you out of the door and put you on the path. So a lot of the things that I'm looking at here is how uh, books or texts inter interact with experiences, what they were reading, how they, like all three people really enjoyed H.P. Lovecraft, what were they taking from Lovecraft, how did these ideas about fiction and metafiction spin into their experiences and what were they reading and how, do, how can we read their, their experiences in turn as a kind of writing that refers to this other work without just reducing it to that, without, while still making space for the radical kinds of encounters, the life-changing encounters that happen with, to people when they have extraordinary experiences, even if they think it was just a drug trip because in a way it almost doesn't matter. And that's the kind of line that I'm trying to, uh, to, to, to work in the book. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Illuminatus trilogy, which Robert Anton Wilson wrote, co-wrote with uh, Robert Shea, and I'll talk a little bit about where, how, they, how they were writing it in this. It sort of introduces the book. I would not recommend that any of you try to read the Illuminatus trilogy. It's very long. There's a lot of slogging, lots of slogging. It has great stuff. So if you're really signed up and you, you're compelled, you have to read it. But there's other Wilson that I would probably read first. I, I've read it twice now, and, and that, that's definitely enough. But it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating book. So with Illuminatus, Shea and Wilson spliced together a restless, baggy, and sometimes brilliant text that though it has never gone out of print, lurks in its own dank limbo of li literary and cultural memory. Written mostly between 1969 and 1971, and only mildly revised before final publication in 1975, it is an unquestionably groundbreaking novel that sustains formal and thematic comparisons to a number of postmodern classics. And I talk about the way that it's similar to Ish Ishmael Reed's Mumbo Jumbo or, or Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow or Phil Dick books. 
But despite the way that it kind of refers to these things, Illuminatus resists canonization as a literary work, even, even as a Philip K. Dick-like outlier. One challenge is the no novel's somewhat off-putting blend of pulp indulgence and ironic avant-garde affectation. On the one hand, the novel's prose and plots draw directly from popular forms like science fiction, right-wing pamphlets, porn, and the druggy slapstick of underground comics. On the other hand, the writing is self-consciously experimental with abrupt te temporal transitions and shifts of voice, Joycean word jazz, and copious metafictional asides. But in some ways, it never quite takes off as a literary work. Regardless, Illuminatus is a masterpiece of 70s high weirdness, despite or even because of its ungainly and dated excesses. Indeed, the book's very proximity to crank literature, radical zines, and the raunchy fringes of the freak scene lends it a vivid arch archival density, like a slightly mildewed arcanum of the zeitgeist. At the same time, Illuminatus directly speaks to the political dimension of high weirdness, which sets it apart from really the, the other people I talk to. Illuminatus is not just a, a novel, but a guerrilla work of anarchist culture jamming, mobilizing a culture, political conspiracies, and psychoactive metaphysics, all of which resonate more powerfully these days than 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's a, it's a kind of disturbingly prophetic book in some ways. Wilson and Shea show that the world is considerably more malleable than it at first appears, and that this flip-flop of fact and fantasy is always political, for good and for ill. This lends the work an almost prophetic relevance for, for readers grappling with the media-driven fragmentation of consensus reality today. The origin of Illuminatus underscores the central importance of political discourse to the novel's crazy quilt of voices. Wilson and Shea met as worker bees in Hugh Hefner's Chicago headquarters, where one of their tasks was to edit and write replies to the Playboy Forum. Not to be confused with the Playboy Advisor, a sex advice column, the forum was introduced in the magazine in 1963 with the express purpose of creating public discussion around the Playboy philosophy. That's right, there, there was one. Uh, this amounted to Hefner's strongly held positions on life, sex, politics, and the pursuit of happiness, though certainly uh, 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 anti-abortion activists will critique Hefner's um, support of abortion for uh, venal reasons. It, he was remarkable in being one of the first people to come out in the mainstream to support abortion rights in the early 60s and other sort of quasi-libertarian uh, positions. Hefner's hedonistic Epicureanism made him a vocal, if self-interested, advocate for strong uh, civil liberties. The forum consequently attracted a wide variety of political players, including libertarian and right-wing voices who on occasion linked the encroachment of civil liberties to larger political conspiracies. Given Playboy's visibility, the forum became a clearinghouse for such alternative views. Wilson and Shea found themselves opening letters from cranks, paranoid psychotics, JFK assassination researchers, and members of the John Birch Society, a rabid anti-communist organization who feared that an international cabal of bankers and statesmen were installing a totalitarian new world order. And these motifs still exist and recur and re are reframed in contemporary uh, conspiracy material. As a lark, the two editors started playing with another conspiratorial scenario, one in which all the plots sent into Playboy were simultaneously true. This kaleidoscopic what-if pluralism became the basic protocol of their novel writing. 
Picking through the waste basket of uncertain and discarded knowledge, Shay and Wilson found surreal and satirical links between actual historical actors, existing conspiracy theories, radical politics, drug scene paranoia, and a culture, the culture of, of the occult. In contrast to uh, Pynchon's paranoid proverbs, Illuminatus familiarizes its readers with a web of lore that hews much more closely to actually existing esoteric and political plots. What results then is a disorienting epistemological dance between fact and fiction. This instability in turn generates a growing network of correspondences whose resonance is not unlike the ringing of a bell that we mentioned with, with Terence a moment ago, whose resonances threaten to overwhelm the reader's skepticism with ominous doses of synchronicity. As such, Illuminatus is an example of what the scholar Asbjorn Dierendel calls conspiracy culture. And this is a really good distinction to think about as we navigate our contemporary moment. In his writings, Dierendel makes a key distinction between conspiracy theory, in which specific agents are exposed and analyzed by researchers largely convinced by their own arguments, and a broader, more postmodern conspiracy culture characterized by uncertainty, skepticism, and a peculiar sense of enjoyment that navigates between passive entertainment and active play, between mocking and belief. And indeed, one of the peculiar things about our moment now that, that this material helps set up and helps you see is how conspiracy culture kind of softens the ground it's entertaining, it's ironic, oh, it's not really asking me to believe anything too kooky, but it's kind of interesting, and so maybe I'll expose myself to it, and then you get kind of into the play, and in a way you're ready for more hardcore accounts, which then some people, for various per, you know, personal and political reasons, uh, find themselves being link, you know, linking up to. So it's really interesting to think about the history of conspiracy theory, even where the term came from, and that was one of the, the research things that I got to do in this book. And there's some interesting, uh, interesting writing on it. And, and it's, a, it's a real tricky thing to talk about. And I, get, I do podcasts sometimes. I talk to people because I'm, I'm really interested in the mode. And I'm sympathetic to a lot of the positions. But then there are aspects that I really am, am turned off from and the lack of critical thinking usually and the kind of psychology of like, I'm the one who knows and you're a dupe and that whole kind of mind frame. And so it's, it's very tricky stuff to write about. But it was really good to do it through this book and through Wilson's own fascination and, to some extent, resistance to conspiracy theory. Um, for both readers and writers, Illuminatus was an initiation into the dangerous pleasures of conspiracy culture. At the same time, the work also paradoxically thickened the believability of certain occult and conspiratorial possibilities that continue to strut their stuff today through the margins of the political imagination. Wilson and Shea prophesied a dynamic that has today become a vertiginous fact of the American political landscape. The conspiracy media is inextricable from what we might call, uh, a la Frederick Jameson, America's religious unconscious. But if Wilson and Shea's exuberant confusion of fact and fantasy has come to take on a rather ominous overtone today, that only speaks to the weird power of the political and ultimately mystical logic they stumbled upon, satirized, and spread. So one of the ironies that I trace in the book uh, is how Wilson you know, co-wrote this fiction, really drove most of it, and, and both in terms of telling stories, re re 
reviving stories, broadcasting stories that then would go into conspiracy culture, particularly ideas about the Illuminati. So I stop and talk about the Illuminati and how they were bringing forward existing ideas about the Illuminati, making stuff up about the Illuminati and getting the whole thing going. But the irony is, is that so a after Wilson has written most of this, he goes, he moves to Berkeley, he's living a freak life, he's taking a lot of LSDs, exploring, uh, you know, Crowleyan magic. And basically, he, he hits a point in the summer of 1973 when it all starts to seem real. And so he's no longer able to maintain his kind of ironic distance from these stories that he's been sort of enjoying, promulgating, but also satirizing. And he falls into what he calls a reality tunnel where he believes that he's in direct communication with disincarnate intelligences associated with the d binary star system of Sirius. And so he, he goes, you know, for quite a while with this sort of mind frame and all these synchronicities are happening and he's basically a little crazy. And then a lot of his, stor his, this, his story in the book Cosmic Trigger is how he kind of gets out of this position. And so a lot of what I'm interested in is talking about, you know, that, that line between credulity and a certain kind of skepticism or distance from uh, these conspiracies and uh, these fantasies. Now, Wilson and, uh, and Terrence McKenna were both druggies. I mean, their experiences are deeply about psychedelics, about LSD, about psilocybin, about DMT, uh, and how these uh, open up the possibilities of kind of programming your own experience, using expectation to almost drive your, your trip. And that's one of the really uh, tricky parts that I, that I kind of pull out, is if you remember earlier I said, what do social scientists say are, is happening in most religious experiences? It's that the people are already programmed with some script or set of expectations, and then finally when they have some kind of nervous, nervous system event, then they run this story in it. And they say, oh, I saw God, and he you know, gave me that, or I, I was freed from sin, and I was baptized in the spirit, or whatever, whatever it is. What the psychedelic guys figured out, you know, Timothy Leary and Wilson and John Lilly and a lot of them was like, oh, wait, you can actually take advantage of this to program your experience because you set up something in advance, then you go and take, take you know, a, strong, a lot of drugs and you're going to like sometimes have an experience that's already been set up. So you have this weird thing where like the experience seems to on the one hand, authenticate the vision, and yet because it's been consciously programmed in advance, it kind of undermines it. And we find ourselves in this sort of more postmodern logic where people are having crazy experiences, but they don't have quite the same claim as they might have had in a situation where people are like, I saw this thing and it was totally true and I totally believe it because they, they kind of know it's a little bit of the mind inventing itself. So they're sort of playing with this potential uh, of the mind. Phil Dick is really different because while Dick did, uh, did drugs, he, uh, especially in the 60s, but he was much more a fan of speed. He only took psychedelics a handful of times. Uh, and while speed definitely probably produced some of his hallucinations because it can produce straight out psychotic hallucinations, by the time in the 70s when, he's, when he has his experience in 1974, the famous pink light Vallis experience, uh, by the time that rolls around, he's really not doing many drugs, so we can't directly kind of blame drugs, although he always had a very interesting non-neurotypical brain. So he offers a kind of different way into some of my questions because I can't just talk 
about psychedelics, but there's a lot of resonances still between his experience, which I think is really important because we tend to think about psychedelics over here in their own zone. It's just there's this little psychedelic world and all the things happen, you're either interested in it or you're not. And then there's over here, there's visionary experiences or other kinds of problems, but they're, they're much more looped together, I believe, than, than we acknowledge. So this is the beginning of the chapter on 2374, which is stuff that I've been thinking about since the 1980s. One of the challenges in thinking about other people's extraordinary experiences is that even if we assume that there is something like pure experience, a big assumption, we can only know about it through the expressive acts of the other. Usually these acts take the form of verbal or written language. And if we are not at all familiar with the, and if we are at all familiar with the tricks of language, to say nothing of the vagaries of memory and self-narration, then we cannot accept such accounts as transparent revelations that somehow transcend the concrete work of mediation. By the time we encounter them, in fact, even the most bare accounts are already interpretations, just as the transcription of dreams we might make in the morning are interpretations even before we ask ourselves what that cigar business was all about. All accounts laminate reference and event, framework and phenomenology. But we must step lightly here. Like, I, I buy that model, but I'm not interested in the kind of reductionism that a lot of people who follow that line of thinking are where they want to write off everything. Oh, it's nothing but. To reduce extraordinary experiences to nothing but, the language of their expression, represents a miserly and pessimistic refusal to accept the phenomenological life that spills over the brim of our talk and text. Indeed, the more seriously we take language, the less we fall into this nothing but trap, because language is always already wrapped up in even the most ineffable of experiences. With the strange domains of high weirdness, signs, associations, and acts of signification are part of the vibrant flux our psychonauts are attempting to describe. The flip side of the spiritual intertextuality opens up a strange possibility. Just as the experience itself is already riven with words, so might the accounts of such experiences and even the second order interpretations of such experiences like this one, even those are in some ways animated by traces of the encounter itself. So just as you can't separate this moment of an extraordinary experience from the texts that surround it, that it draws from and that it expresses itself, when you follow those texts, in some sense, there's some trace of this experiential event. Rather than being hopelessly belated or out of tune, reading and writing are the central features of the mysteries of extraordinary experience. In Jeff Kripal's words, quote, Reading and writing are the most powerful paranormal technologies that we possess, if only we knew what and how to read. In this book, we've attempted to model some approaches to this question of how to read extraordinary experiences. One of these is to trace what Kripal calls, quote, the strange loopiness of particularly profound acts of interpretation, end quote. This loop unfurls when the hermonaut, who may be the psychonaut or the reader, us thinking about it, finds herself in a paradoxical circle or loop in which the reading transforms both the read and the reader. Studying talk and texts about weird and impossible things, and this also very much applies to conspiracy theory, then demands of us a strangely doubled reading, at once a hyper-awareness about the ways that language and narrative shape and slip into experience, 
and an almost naive embrace of the words we actually have before us, not because they communicate without distortion, but because they are the most demonic of messengers, potential initiators who demand respect and attention if they are to unfold their squirrely and sometimes infectious goods. So what I'm saying is that when we read like Terence writing True Hallucinations as a writer, you know, using literary techniques to tell a story that he's told before and keep changing and enriching, that's fine. We know that that's not the thing itself. And yet, in a way, the language, the images, and certainly some of the symbols and deep patterns that keep coming back are kind of emissaries of the experience itself that we encounter in a more direct way even as readers than I think we mostly acknowledge. And again, why I said this is also applies to conspiracy theory is because there's, a, there's an infectious quality of these stories. And I, I use that language intentionally while recognizing that there's always a danger of talking about things in terms of uh, metaphors of disease and infection. It's like kind of a dangerous way of thinking about social facts. But I think in some cases it's really kind of true how these things sort of worm their way in as little voices in your ear and then they start to recode or reframe how you experience life until you find yourself thinking in a very different kind of way. And in that sense, uh, conspiracy and, and religious thought are, are are, can be fairly similar. Uh, so then I'll just one more bit, it kind of sets up what I'm doing with Dick. Uh, in the, uh, da, da, da. With Dick, we find ourselves in a more labyrinthine terrain. Dick's experiences were not only weird, but multitudinous, complicated, and temporally confused. In addition, Dick had an obsessive, hypergraphic drive to produce multiple accounts of experiences, and to do so using many different kinds of writing, fictions, essays, correspondence, and private journal entries. Given the myriad of accounts, we have no choice but to superimpose these multiple drafts of revelation and attend to the contradictions, mutations, and deeper patterns that emerge. For as we will see, Dick's core revelation was itself a kind of text from beyond. So what makes, I think this is a kind of unusual, it was a fun book to write, but also really tough because I really wanted to make some scholarly arguments in the sense that I wanted scholars, specifically scholars who deal with religion, extraordinary experience, paranoia, psychedelics, to have to take on the reality of these experiences in a way that made it hard for them to avoid. So I had like actual kind of scholarly goals, but at the same time, I wanted the thing to be in a way infected, to have some of this weirdness in it so that if you read it and you start following the symbols and start tracing the undercurrents that are going on, in a way you, you, you catch a little bit of it, the way that when I was young and I read Vallis, I caught something that it couldn't get out of my mind. And, and it, it shaped my life, it even shaped synchronicities, it shaped dreams. There's something you know, potent about certain kinds of texts, at least for some people. And obviously most people it doesn't, doesn't affect, but if you have that kind of mind, there's some sorts of texts that are gonna get in there. Robert Anton Wilson, I think, is a, is a really good example uh, of, of, of another one. Let me just check the, check the time here. Also, I, I mean, we'll do some little Q&A afterwards. So uh, yeah, we got a little bit more time. We'll read one more, one more section from the, the PKD. I don't even remember what I did, what I pulled out here. Um, no, that's not it. It's, uh, da, da, da. oh, maybe I didn't have it. Oh, wait, yeah, here it is. Here it is. Here we are. Oh, yeah, this is a nice little California bit. Oh, then we'll close. Um, 
so in the dualist cosmology that drives much of the exegesis, a nearly unbridgeable boundary exists between the higher and lower domains. There is the liberating information of the living plasmate, Vallis, and there is the fallen and spurious world of empire, a black iron prison of illusion, futility, and fate. Uh, we've already tracked some of the ways that Dick imagined and experienced the inbreaking information vector against the background of the fallen world, but there's another crucial feature to explore, one that helps us understand how Dick thought about his own deep sense of alienation. When the plasmate invades our bankrupt world, it literally has no place. There's nowhere for it to be. In the realms of Maya that we inhabit, the truth cannot appear enthroned in or as its own substance. Instead, like a crumpled newspaper flapping down the street, or the letter in the hymn of the pearl that the hero stumbles upon, which is a Gnostic text that was very important to Dick that I talk about at some length, the message from beyond is always homeless, always alight, which is why while it can't appear as an idealistic form, it can appear in and as information. Dick represented the furtiveness, this restlessness of sacred information as in part a matter of disguise. Within enemy territory, even the truth must resort to simulation. This is why Dick sometimes calls the plasmate zebra, which camouflages itself by sophisticated mimicry in order to enter our world. This camouflage resonates with the guerrilla stance of Dick's Gnostic Christian underground, whose members resort to subliminal triggers and secret tokens as part of their co covert resistance to empire. But the language of camouflage also recalls Eliade's pregnant polarity of sacred and profane. For Eliade, the sacred and the profane not only mutually define one another, the sacred also manifests in our world precisely by appearing in and as the profane. Hierophanies or, or, or revelations can happen anywhere and in anything, even in the humdrum objects of disenchanted modernity. As Eliade explained, if the fantastic or the supernatural or the superhistorical is somehow accessible to us as moderns, like us right here, we cannot encounter it except camouflaged in the banal. There's a lot packed in that that's very, very interesting about the kind of whatever, the forms of spiritual seeking that emerge from a, a modern sensibility that doesn't deny its own modernity. This helps explain why Vallis as zebra does not mimic the noble or sublime things in the world like religious icons or gorgeous mountain ranges. You'd think if like the saving information from beyond was coming into our world, it would look like this wonderful stuff. Instead, uh, Dick's God pretends to be, quote, sticks and trees and beer cans and gutters. He presumes to be trash discarded, debris no longer needed. This sacred slumming also inspires one of Vallis's great mottos, wh who, which Dick offers at the close of the novel. Sunk down in front of his TV, watching for further signs, Dick proclaims that, quote, the symbols of the divine show up in our world initially at the trash stratum. Just a couple more uh, graphs. Theologically, this turn towards trash reflects Dick's countercultural Christianity and the logic of inversion that drives so much of the Christ myth. The high God becomes a lowly man who's treated like trash. The last becomes first, and the rejected rock becomes the cornerstone. But trash also represents Dick's abiding concern with entropy and his cognate here with the kipple from androids or the dust 
Dick famously invoked at the close of the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, the dust we come from and to which we will return. Once again, Dick seems to invert or flip-flop values, transforming entropic kipple into esoteric divinity. But Dick, and we in some sense, had more concrete and immediate reasons to affirm the trash stratum. It was where he lived, and it was where he worked. In a letter to Stanislaw Lem in 1973, Dick classed himself as one of the beatnik writers of the West Coast, all of whom wrestle with the same best basic existential condition. Quote, you see, Mr. Lem, there is no culture here in California, only trash. And we who grew up here and live here and write here have nothing else to include as elements in our work. The West Coast has no tradition, no dignity, no ethics. This is where that monster Richard Nixon grew up. How can one create novels based on this reality which do not contain trash? Because the alternative is to go into dreadful fantasies of what it ought to be like. One must work with the trash, pit it against itself. This is a fine articulation of one of Dick's key moves, pitting trash against itself. But it, and then I go on to say, talk about how this whole mode really reflects a larger California aesthetics. And again, with the temptation with someone like Dick is to put him off to the side as totally singular. He's not like anybody else. There's no other science fiction writer like him. There's nothing else like him. And it's partly because you want to kind of contain it. You don't want to make it seem as continuous with other things. But one of the things it's continuous here is a whole tradition of, of assemblage art and using trash, pitting trash against itself uh, you know, through art. And in some ways, the exegesis which weaves together all this material that he's reading, the encyclopedia, all the novels he's reading, his own work, and he's like building this strange kind of collage out of all these different concepts that twist and turn and contradict each other and superimpose and resonate, and he just writes this thing for day, you know, years and years and years until it's a million words long of this crazy private, uh, private diary. In, in many ways, he's involved with a certain kind of, uh, of collaging. But one more point. There is an even more intimate dimension to this trash stratum for Dick. Early in his career, Dick desperately wanted to be taken seriously as a mainstream literary author and wrote many realist and generally bleak novels that he could never get published. Uh, the exception, written in 1959, was the aptly titled Confessions of a Crap Artist. So you see the resonance. As such, Dick found himself consigned to the genre of science fiction for the entirety of his marginalized and often impoverished life as a writer. Though the golden ghetto of, of SF afforded him some advantages, most literary readers and critics of his day regarded science fiction as juvenile trash, roughly akin to comic books and monster movies. By divinizing the trash stratum, Dick was also affirming the transformative possibilities of his own lowly genre as well as the visionary potential of popular culture's weird margins. And in its loopy, recursive way, the novel Vallis turns on precisely this profane and sacred hope, which in some sense I think we're still kind of living within. But uh, I, will, I will finish the reading now, and we can uh, have some questions. Thanks so much for your attention. Anything? Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, and I talk about that specifically with with Dick. I mean, one of the th uh, threads in the in the in the book is if as I'm looking at these experiences, which in some ways resemble religious experiences, and in other ways resemble psychotic experiences, and they're kind of like navigating a path between them. And in Dick's case, in particular, because he had so many overt signs of mental illness, he was suicidal terribly bipolar, you know, drug addict. I mean, he had a lot of, he was a non-neurotypical character who had a very rough time pretty much most of his life. The question of pathology is a really important one to me, but what I wanted to do is not pathologize the pathology, but instead kind of recognize it as sort of another domain that these people try to navigate. So it's sort of like what you're saying is that even if it's kind of psychotic or, you know, uh, uh, some other form of mental illness, that there are answers there, or there are ways in which people draw from that for in meaningful ways that then they go forward in their lives. And, and oftentimes, because they have no choice, it's like you either, you know, you may not be able to keep the demons down, so you might as well dance with them rather than have them consume you, which I think is actually a lot of the reasons that some people turn towards weird religions or psychedelics or, uh, you know, other extreme forms of strange experiences because they're trying to actually manage and sort of embrace and develop some relationship with their own capacity for psychotic experience. And so the world seems I, yeah, that's what I think, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's both moral and tactical. Like it's almost like a way, and in fact, one of the metaphors that I use throughout is I talk about the tightrope. And it's almost like these people are maintaining a certain relationship to reason and skepticism as they're walking towards stranger and stranger materials, but they have to keep a certain balance. And then we can watch at certain points as they fall. They fall into delusion, they fall into inflation, they fall into paranoia. And you know, why would you do that? I'm not sure you have much choice at some point, but there, there's something about uh, that balance that seemed really interesting to try to articulate. Your, your question pointed right towards it. Anything else? Yeah, nothing, nothing, yeah. No, we're the literature, the aesthetic. No. So you're saying how is that, how is that changed today? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. That comes up a lot. Different forms that have come up a lot in all the talks I've given. What he was mentioning is at the beginning when I'm trying to figure out a, a concept, a conceptual space that will enable me to deal with these guys and their in their experiences. And so, it's, as I said, it's sort of like religious metaphors don't quite work because they're like religious experiences, but not. Psychotic or pathologizing ones, that don't really work. So what's something that will do? And I go, ah, oh, I think the weird is a good one. And I spend a lot of time in the introduction saying why I'm using that word, how I'm using that word. And there are really three dimensions of it. One, as I mentioned before, is its aesthetic category. It's a certain kind of experience. We have a felt sense that we see in novels and poems. We can trace it as a literary effect, as a genre. And again, H.P. Lovecraft being a great example of it. And so that's part of what's feeding into these experiences. Another one 
is social deviancy. You know, like in some ways, the, the weird is, is, is kind of similar to the uncanny, the way we think about the uncanny, but one, uh, there's some really interesting differences as well. And one is that the uncanny is never like a person, like an uncanniest. And it's not a social location. Whereas weird, and especially a, being a weirdo, is a type of person and a social location of deviancy. So the first time I saw that word used, the weird goes back for centuries, and I trace it, but weirdo, I, the earliest I could find was the early 1940s, where it's associated with, with perverted individuals. So there's this sense of, of deviancy associated with it, and definitely by 60s and 70s and 80s, there's a whole subculture of people who don't think of themselves as hippies, don't think of themselves as revolutionaries, they think of themselves as freaks or weirdos. And, that, and it's partly dependent on the fact that back then there was a subculture that was actually kind of a space that had its own mediations, it wasn't translated into anything like the internet, you had to kind of, you had to kind of find it through personal connections, you had to do some work, you had to, there was some risk involved. And so that, in a sense, is the authentic weird. And then the question is, where is this uh, now today? And I think that the aesthetic weird has changed drastically because of, you know, the, the, just the internet and the way things have shifted and the popularization of the margins. And now all of these things that I've been writing about forever, Burning Man and psychedelics and, you know, strange religions and all this stuff is much more mainstream, much more central. So that side of the weird is kind of gone. The side of deviancy, not nah, really, because what's deviant? I mean, you know, what's deviant now, really? I mean, in a way, it's deviant. Normcore is deviant. It's like having like an earring and being into psychedelics and going to the jungle and reading occult books. It's like, oh, yeah, go, yeah, you go, you know. It's sort of dime a dozen at this point, so that's sort of gone. But the third sense of the term that I'm interested in is what I call ontological. And what am I saying by that? I'm saying a, a couple things. One is I don't think it's an accident that in the same period, 1970s, of such high weirdness, that you find the first use of the word weird to describe the consequences of quantum physics. And these aren't just like pop writers. This is like analytic philosophers and actual physicists when they're saying, look, if quantum physics is right, and we're not going to go into quantum physics now, but if quantum physics is right in things like entanglement and the way you know, uh, particle duality at whatever are true, then reality is fucking weird. Like really weird, like whoa, super counterintuitive, can't wrap my head around it, like really different causality, different, nope, not that kind of causality, that it's really challenging. And so they reach for the word weird to kind of contain or explain or frame that challenge to our normal sense of reality. Why was it that word? And that's part of the story that I'm kind of telling. But for me, it's also about something else, which is that these experiences, paranormal experiences, extraordinary experiences, religious experiences sometimes, visionaries, dream, parapsychology, all that stuff, that they contain within them a gesture towards the real, that it's not just a story, it's not just a fabrication, even if a lot of it is a story and a fabrication, that there's some element, there's some hunch we have that something about reality is here. Even the fact that there's a loop and that we can't get to the thing itself except through the stories that we're telling about it and yet the, the thing itself comes back with another story that then gets infected. You know, we, that looping process which I describe throughout the book to me is part of the way the world works. It's not just like a strange factor of our 
personality or our minds as human beings. It's something about the way agents interact with this multitudinous field. So that's sort of my hunch. And in that sense, I think the world is getting weirder. And just as the sacred is sort of buried in the profane, the weird is buried in the banal, in our banal. So like the, the internet banalizes everything. It doesn't matter what it is, it becomes banal. And so then you're like, oh, it's all, it doesn't have any enchantment, it's bereft, it's just meaningless signs. And it's like, well, yes, but also there's something hidden or there's something being staged in that banal. And the most you know, direct way of talking about it is that I think it's also not an accident that one, not too frequent, but uh, you know, sometimes people say, no, 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 global warming is not a good phrase because it just sounds like everything is just kind of getting hotter, which doesn't capture it because what it actually is doing is getting more turbulent. And some people say, well, it's not global warming, it's global weirding. And that's actually close to something really true because now we're all unsettled on a very intuitive, embedded, material, atmospheric way, like fundamentally unsettled in a way we don't know what to do with it, we don't know where to put it. You know, every time you get into your car and you turn it on, you're like in some ways contributing to this climate crisis. You know, like how do I relate this to this mere experience or we, we can like freak out with like what we're doing with plastic and we're like the plastic is everywhere, the pl you know, like it's, it's surreal in a way, this experience, and, and sort of dis and disturbing for, for obvious reasons. It has apocalyptic undertow to it. And so it's, for me, it's that the weird is there, the weirdness of the real, and especially the weirdness of how our beliefs about reality construct reality. And we can see that right now because it's like the, cat, like the, the, the cat's out of the bag. Like for a long time, consensus reality was like, look, don't talk about the way that beliefs totally construct reality. Let's just keep it going because it, you know, it's pretty good, sensible, common sense, universities, mainstream media. Let's just like keep the action there and then there's going to be these little marginal fringes where people do this. And now that's, that's eroded. It's gone. It's, 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 or it's dissolving or in the midst of dissolving. And everyone is either um, a victim of, or, or sometimes it seems like everyone's either a victim of or a, uh, a sort of opportunistic um, uh, uh, exploiter of the fact that beliefs are very easy to create, manipulate, and to then get sort of stuck within, and it's all weaponized. And so we've, we're experiencing this kind of meltdown of consensus reality, which produces very profound effects that have to do with the real and where the real is. So I think that the, the surface level of the weird has been consumed, like Lovecraft or Burning Man or whatever, and all that, like that liberatory potential of it in a way is not really accessible. But beneath it is like a more fundamental confrontation with something that's not particularly pleasant, that's actually really disturbing, that has a kind of surreal quality, like it's, is this real or not real? Am I, am I in a loop or that psychedelic kind of in a dark sense? I feel like that's actually part of our weave. So it's sort of both, both situations I think are kind of true now. Yes, sir. Stephanie, I do, Stephanie. Do you mean uh, the one, the character who becomes Donna? And in, in, yes. in, uh, do I mention them? Yeah, I talk about when when they when he comes back from Vancouver. You know, he's he's Vancouver is like the low point in his life, 1970. He goes up there to give a talk. 
he, he loses the plot, he tries to kill himself, he goes into a kind of synanon-like drug rehab place and he, they're trying to reprogram him and he's, he's got missing time that he, maybe there were men in black, it's just really low. And then he gets an inv invitation to give a talk in Fullerton and this is when he moves down to Southern California and part of the crew, part of the reason he stayed was because he showed up, his, basically he showed up and gave his talk and he's like, all right, he was going to put me up. And there were these students around, including, and what am I, I'm forgetting her real name. This is annoying. It's not Stephanie. Donna's the name of the character. Linda. Okay. Linda. And uh, that she's one of the people that he's hanging around. So I referred to that group. And I have to refer, because it's ethically required of me, to the fact that he was um, an abuser. And he, and he, you know, he was, he was abusive to her as he was to a few other people. But I don't go into the story at so a great extent. And my last question is, do you think trash is just that now, or are that it's lost some of its potency? It's never been more popular, like you said, things like Game of Thrones, but yeah. they don't really seem to have as much substance or mm -hmm. underlying mm -hmm. uh, meaning as other works, uh, say, in like the Golden Age of sci-fi. That's a great question. I think it's, it's related to the weird one, but also appropriately different. Um, one of the things about the trash culture, and I think about it particularly through a California bohemian lens, and right now I'm, I'm thinking of something that uh, the poet David Meltzer said about the artist, uh, uh, the seminar artist, and I'm spacing his name, come on, come on, help me out here. The, what's that? Wallace Furman, thank you. Uh, uh, thanks for my senior, for fixing my senior moment, Tim. Um, Wallace Berman, where he s talked about going to the Berman's house, which was, they were very poor, they lived on nothing, but there was this amazing enchantment to the objects that they gathered. And so it's, you get into that like thrift store cruise model where you're finding these magical little objects that are, that are essentially trash or thrown off and then building them together to make something beautiful happen and taking that farther to the idea of assemblage art where you take junk and you put it together and you can see that motif comes up over and over throughout and again I'm thinking it's all over the world but particularly in a California lens and that leads you right into like Burning Man art. I mean Burning Man art is the same thing. It's like taking trash, putting it together in a different context, juxtaposition and you make something kind of magical happen. But meanwhile, if you just think about the thrift store logic, that the thrift store mode becomes more and more a sort of form of cultural consumption and, and cultural expression, and it becomes more absorbed into the mainstream market, so that the prices, the fluctuating prices of treasures become less and less uh, unpredictable and more and more mechanistic or algorithmically led, so that now it's actually very hard to find something that is worth greatly less than what it is worth in some kind of general market, whereas that was the that was the way it was in the 70s or the 80s. You'd find something like, oh my God, Funkadelic record for 50 cents. This is worth like 50 bucks. So much fun. So having been shaped by that and, and hearing your question, I can only feel that like the weird, it, it is also lost uh, a great deal of it. Or it's both lost it and come back with a different kind of threat, like the way that plastic is now also a kind of threat that we live in in a way before it was you could really genuinely throw away plastic it was like kind of out of your consciousness and now it's like we know we are not we're not doing that like Malaysia doesn't want it China doesn't want it oh shit and it's like everywhere oh my god what am I going to do with this stuff so it's a little bit less uh, groovy in a way our relationship to trash because we're more and more aware of it as a kind of uh, toxic source but in terms of cultural forms yeah in general I think 
a lot of just culture in general, I don't think often packs the punch that it once did because it's so recirculated, so, um, you know, uh, uh, based on audience surveys, sort of mechanically produced, like subcultures themselves are kind of engineered from the get-go as part of the marketing campaign. And so you don't have, you just don't have the space and time for interesting, rich, involuted cultural formations to develop because as soon as they develop any sort of traction, then they get mediated much more broadly and so there's just not time and space for interesting things to develop in the same way and they become more engineered so we're much more in a situation where like god i'm just like being trying they're trying to engineer every move i'm making like the algorithms are all watching me all the time trying to predict my move and I'm trying to elude them and they know i'm trying to elude them and you know it's it's a very different kind of situation that i think also saps the uh profane punch of trash in the way that you talk about it. Yeah? So I'm watching the analogy to philosophy get to this place where it was sort of tinkered and sort of played. Mm. Um, very, good, very good point. And, and physics. Yeah, and math, a straight mm -hmm. up abstract math. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I uh, on the latter one, I kind of made a decision not to speculate in that direction, not because I don't think such speculations are warranted or valuable, because I do, but in a way I set myself a kind of game, which was, let's see if I can both present and to some extent extend the contagion without at all invoking anything supernatural or mystical or whatever, even though I think you can go through math and you can go through all sorts of ways and miss music and get things that are not materialist in that way. But the, the first question is, uh, that's an interesting one. I mean, obviously these things are elsewhere. A every story, you know, a lot of what you could say about California is true of New York City in terms of the counterculture and relationships with junk and relationships with glitter and trash and there's you know there's, it's not an exclusively Californian story I see it that way just because I tend to focus in on the west coast um, but I think that it's sort of like what, what Dick was writing about that there's just not the traditions and the kind of well-established institutions to prevent or to push against fantasy and then the whole, you know this place is built on fantasy you know, we're in LA you know it's like what was these you know, real estate developers who are making up fantasies and ideas and drawing pictures of what this kind of barren desert was like and that we're, you know, living inside of that, that loop and then at the same time you have Hollywood and the production of images and you have whatever happens with the, with the internet, which is a, a complicated story, but, but similar. I mean, in a lot of ways the, the internet introduces a kind of postmodern logic in the sense that it undermines existing institutions and the kinds of uh, traditions that would push back against this kind of um, strangeness. So it's 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 easier to tap into here. And in and in the end, you know, what the, one of the the questions I, I set myself or the problems I set myself was, why did these three guys have these experiences that were kind of similar? And they're like different and similar. 
but there are similarities. There's something sort of religious, sort of psychotic, there's synchronicities, there's alien forces, there's science fiction elements, there's relationship to Lovecraft and weird fiction, there's elements of paranoia, there's uh, encounters with, with these sort of non-corporeal intelligences. How do we, how do, why? Why is this happening, you know? And I, I mostly uh, just talk, address that in the end, and rather than talking about their influences or the psychology of the counterculture, what I actually do is sort of embed it in a larger story about the development of uh, the early internet and indeed the very idea of a network uh, as something that's emerging also very much in California where you have the first node of the internet, where you have people starting to work on video conferencing. And I follow some of the historical links between this sort of weird consciousness underculture and uh, the development of these network technologies through SRI and Jacques Vallée and loops that connect all these things that show that like in some sense California at least in the 70s was like it was one operation where what scientists were doing and, te and technologists were doing was of a weave with what these con consciousness explorers are doing including psychedelic uh, people. So I think that that was another really important feature was that there was kind of a a network sensibility that was coming online, partly through the counterculture, partly through technology, partly through the the nature of the business in the in the technology world that set in motion things that made California more explicitly and infectiously weird. And that now I think part of the banality of it is because it was sort of successful and it changed things, it eroded traditions, whatever, in terms of personal appearances and ideas, but then in so incorporating it into business as usual or un unusual business as usual, it took away the, the, that potency in a, in a lot of ways. Well, I've been ran, ran, rambling here for a while. Are there any last questions? You know, that's interesting. I think so. I mean, because like you, you meet people and they're kind of they're weird, you know. <laughs> You're like, wow, that's a trip. I don't know about that. Yeah, I think so. I don't know if you can do it intentionally, though. Maybe uh, that's a good question. I'll, we'll have to, I'll, I'll keep trying. I'll get back to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And now it seems more to be uh, a right yeah. kind of phenomenon. Yeah. Is that true or is that a representation or is it just local shift? That's a great, great question. I don't address that in the book, but I actually spend a lot of time, too much time uh, reading this stuff. Like I'm, you know, it's like I feel like it's my job, but it's sort of a burden. Uh, I, I believe, as far as I can tell, that that's totally true. Uh, that what you had in the in the 90s as either as right, rightly said either a kind of libertarian or just a kind of fringe perspective which was often had a left twist to it um, that it's been very thoroughly weaponized and partly through the process that I'm talking about where it, it, it sort of gives you yummy like conspiracy culture isn't this wacky like ooh possibility and it kind of like plays off of that sneaking suspicion which is a bit of like the horror aesthetic where there's your sneaking suspicion that maybe this thing is actually true or the book is actually true or something 
And so it's playing with that edge, and then there's just this very, very well, you know, uh, established machinery, almost an algorithmic machinery that takes advantage of that and pulls it into narratives that resonate with more well-established right-wing perspectives so that people kind of affectively, their, their sneaking suspicion hearts become sort of resonantly bound up with these much more explicit kind of narratives. And it was really noticeable. I mean, I know, I'm not a super conspiracy theory like person, but I know people who are, and they were like, oh, no, no. I remember it was like a year ago or a year and a half ago, like all these podcasts, they just started to go right. And, uh, you know, and that's partly involved with post-truth and the whole kind of thing. So it's, it's, it seems very clear that the weaponized undermining of consensus reality through conspiracy theory is now in service in many regards to a, another agenda that is not ex specifically conspiratorial necessarily. Well, that was a good, well, I mean, Robert Anton Wilson was, was definitely, you know, someone who, who set in motion that kind of, I mean, there were, there were conspiracies about, I mean, you know, there was like fluoride conspiracies, those goes back to the 60s, you know, there's, the Birchers were always right-wing conspiracy theories, so there was always the right-wing side of it, you know, there, anything global, anything, you know, international, anything like that is like threatening the good, you know, individualist, white American subject. So that thread in, the, in, in America has been there since the you know, early 19th century. Uh, but what else in the 70s? You know, in the 70s, there were also like that, not quite conspiracy theory, but functions as it, like um, you know, ancient alien stuff, like von Daniken, where it's, it's not like a conspiracy, like there's a, a cabal that are preventing us from knowing this, but that actually, the secret history of, of human history is that there were these god aliens at the beginning and that's why. So it, it takes on that kind of form. And you can totally understand that distinction that the dude made between conspiracy culture and conspiracy theory because tons of people reading those books were just reading them for a, you know, to get kicks. And there's a weird kind of just like, when you more you think about a more ethically problematic relationship to be, between kicks and conspiracy material, it's like maybe in the 90s, you're just getting your kicks, reading weird stuff, you know, stuff about the Trilateral Commission, you know, uh, we come, you know pale, here comes a pale horse, like these great classics were really interesting. And, you know, a lot of people who read it were just kind of like, wow, let's check it out. And now it's all, it all seems to be more fraught and more plugged into these larger, uh, these larger trends. But, but Wilson, you know, to his credit and his blame was, partly responsible for, for fomenting that. And I know like Tom Dish, the science fiction writer, wrote a pretty acid book about science fiction culture. And he was sort of, he was very dark on America, what he thought of Americans, uh, uh, what he, he, he accused them as their sort of, the idea that we all have a right to lie and the way in which like figures like Edgar Allan Poe were basically just liars and sort of taking advantage of people's gullibility. And so Dish had very negative things to say about Wilson because he saw him as taking advantage of people who didn't have the critical sensibility he did and fomenting things that then he's, he should be responsible for. And to some extent, that's true. Anytime you put out even highly sarcastic, uh, uh, you know, conspiratorial material, like I just saw a Church of Subgenius documentary 
And that stuff is just silly all the way through. It's just satirical. It's totally obvious it's satirical. But they were like, nope, we had them. We had true believers come in and say, hey, you're making fun of Bob, you know. You, you're going to get in trouble making fun of Bob. And they're like, are you kidding? We're, oh, God, they're true. So once you do that, there is a kind of responsibility and an ethics of it uh, that makes all the stuff a little bit, you know, it's Wilson's having fun with it, and it's, it, it's not so fun. All righty. So maybe bring the book. Thank you. Thanks for showing up on this warm afternoon. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.